0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we have to confess to being rather relentlessly negative on last week's program, and unfortunately, I anticipate us going down that road quite a bit again today. So... Well, we thought we ought to do is start today's program with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because as a rule, those are not morose items. I'd have to say it was a good week a few weeks back for getting what's do you with the news that former President Trump has reportedly consistently ignored or rejected pleas from Rudy Giuliani, his former lawyer, who needs help and is now drowning in legal bills resulting from his quixotic efforts to keep Donald Trump in office. You would think that Rudy Giuliani would have been able to take a look at Trump's history and see what was coming. Evidently not. On the other hand, it was a bad week that week for O.J. Simpson, who said he doesn't visit Los Angeles because the murder of former wife Nicole Brown Simpson remains unsolved. I might be sitting right next to whoever did it, he explained. I have to say, this ranks right up there with the famous joke line about the man who murdered both of his parents and then threw himself on the mercy of the court because he was an orphan. It was apparently an ugly week last week for reviews after a tourist visiting Loch Ness in Scotland left a vicious one-star TripAdvisor review complaining that the Loch's famous monster never showed up. Warned the reviewer, don't go if you're wanting to see it, because you'll end up bitterly disappointed like we were. Well, we certainly hope he does better when he comes to California to Willow Creek and goes on that Sasquatch tour. And a couple weeks back, it was a good week for what we'd have to call Trump-inspired mania with the news that doctors in COVID-ravaged Missouri say that anti-vaccine sentiment is running so high that some patients are wearing disguises to get their shots. Dr. Priscilla Fraze of Ozarks Healthcare said that patients have begged her, please, please, please don't let anybody know that I got this vaccine. The hospital now offers shots in a private setting to protect patients from being shunned. It was, on the other hand, certainly a bad week for honoring thy father and mother. With the word, Quentin Tarantino has stuck to his vow never to give his mother a penny of his filmmaking fortune because she belittled his childhood interest in writing. The director said in an interview a couple weeks back that when he was young, his mother, Connie Zestupli, scolded him for being a disinterested student, to the point where Clarantino claims she once said, This little writing career that you're doing. This crap is effing over. Well, to that effect? Tarantino said he decided that if he got rich, there'll be no house for you. There's no vacation for you. No Elvis Cadillac for mommy. You get nothing. And Tarantino now says he has kept his word apart from helping her out once with a jam with the IRS. Quentin Tarantino has a warning for other parents. There are consequences for your words as you deal with your children. To which I would add, what a jackass. And finally, it was an ugly week couple weeks back for high expectations after the Oregon Democratic Governor, Kate Brown, scrapped the requirement that high school students in Oregon demonstrate proficiency in math, reading, and writing. She did so that she did this so that more minority students can graduate. The Nonprofit Foundation, the nonprofit foundation for a Better Oregon thanked Brown for her commitment to every student's success. And no, we're not sure how you are demonstrating a commitment to s- student success by not requiring them to have proficiency in math, reading, or writing, and to say nothing of what this may mean for, you know, possible employers in the future, assuming that they're a minority student, because he's a minority student that graduated in Oregon and probably can't read or write or do math. And we have some breaking news to report on the Pythagorean theorem, which admittedly is a rare thing, The news is, it turns out, the ancient Babylonians understood key concepts in geometry, including how to make precise right-angled triangles. They used this know-how to divide up farmland more than a thousand years before the Greek philosopher Pythagoras, with whom these ideas are associated. The story is, apparently Daniel Mansfield of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, had been studying a clay tablet known as Plimpton 322, Dates from between about 1900 and 1600 B.C. It bears cuneiform markings that mark up a table listing Pythagorean triples. Of course, the article puts that in parentheses. I'm sure the Babylonians weren't calling them Pythagorean triples. The fact is, each triple comprises the length of the sides of a right-angled triangle, where each side is a whole number. Handy thing. Simplest example? Three, four, and five. Others include... 5, 12, and 13. And the key clue to why this was important uh, came from a second tablet excavated in Iraq in 1894. Mansfield tracked it down to a Turkish museum. It was a surveyor's tablet used to make calculations to fairly share out a plot of land by dividing it in two rectangles. Now, I'm not as up on math as I might be, but it, it seems to me that if you got a rectangle that Got three and four on its sides, then that diagonal, which is five, isn't all that relevant. Also, if you have a rectangle that's five and twelve, the thirteen diagonal doesn't seem like it's that important to me. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, I've never had to divide up land in ancient Babylonia or contemporary America. So I don't know. Maybe that third number is useful. But uh, let's talk about land use in contemporary America, or at least how you can bring land into agricultural production. There's an fascinating article in The Atlantic titled, The Well Fixer's Warning. article by Max Arax subtitled, The Lesson That California Never Learns. This is a pretty good piece, probably worth uh, excerpting from it rather extensively. starts out by noting that the well fixer and I were standing at the edge of an almond orchard in the exhausted middle of California. It was late July and so many wells of the farms of Madera County were coming up dry. He was running out of parts to fix them. In this latest round of western drought, desperate voices were calling him at 6 in the morning and again at midnight. They were puzzled why their pumps were coughing up sand, and the water's flow to their orchards was now down to a trickle. It occurred to him that these same farmers had endured at least five droughts since the mid-70s, and that drought, like the sun, was an eternal condition of California. But he also understood that their ability to shrug off nature... No one forgot the last drought faster than the farmers. Steinbeck wrote, was part of their genius. Their collective amnesia had allowed them to forge the most industrialized farm belt in the world. Whenever a new drought set down, they believed it was a force that could be conquered. Build more dams, their signs along Highway 99 read, even though the dams of the San Joaquin River already number half a dozen. The well fixer understood their hidebound ways. He understood their stubbornness and maybe even their delusion. Here at the continent's edge, nothing westward but the sea, we were all deluded. Anyway, the well fixer's name is Matt Angel. His company is Madeira Pumps. He lives in the city of Madeira. As he guided the author out to the almond orchard that was on the, the colony of Fairmead, which is on Madeira County's northern fridge, uh, the author suggested to him that maybe he was a whistleblower, adding that when I suggested that he had the tone and tilt of an agrarian Cassandra, he paused for a second and said, I like that. Cassandra, in case you forget, was the woman in in Homer who um, had the gift of second sight. The gods punished her by setting out that though she may be able to see into the future, no one would believe her predictions. Pump mechanic Matt Angle explained to him that um, they were looking at a well that was 350 feet that had been dug decades earlier by a Midwestern corn farmer. And this well had done yeoman's work in keeping the drip lines running until the drought of 2012 to 2016, which was a history breaker. To make up for the scant flow of rivers, farmers across the valley had pumped so much water out of the earth that thousands of wells came up dry. Thousands. This well surged and groaned a death rattle and finally succumbed in 2014, years after the farmer had. So, His family, needing to grab a bigger share of the aquifer, dug a second well 1,100 feet deep and called on Angle to install a more powerful pump. He lowered his tentacles until he hit an ancient lake beneath the valley and went home thinking that was the last of it. Now it was seven years later he'd been summoned back to the almond orchard to figure out why the second well, barely broken in, was failing. He snaked a camera down the stretch of hole where he remembered the aquifer being. It wasn't there. He went deeper, but the only flow he could find was pinched off. What little water the pump was drawing was so foul with salts that the orchard was burning up. If the well wasn't fixed, and that happened to be a $40,000 job, the trees would be as good as dead before the crop came in. Peace notes that from the data on his devices, Angle calculated that the underground water table in Madera County, one of the most overtapped in the West, had dropped an astounding 60 feet over this spring and summer. So many ag pumps were dipping their bowls in the same depleted resource that the aquifer collapsing, a descent he had never witnessed. I'm 62. I've been doing this more than half my life, and I've never seen this. Not even close, he said. This is all brand new, and it's shaken everything I believe in. When he took a closer look at the well's steel casing, he could see six hairline fractures that started at the 280-foot level and ended at the 900-foot level. But what he encountered between those two depths confirmed a phenomenon sometimes found in clay soils, but rarely in sandy loams like this. The casing had been bent by a profound force. The steel was ripped like a crushed soda can. That force, he knew, was the downward pull of subsidence. As a consequence of too much water being sucked out of the aquifer, the earth itself was sinking, first by inches, then by feet, shearing off pumps, eating away at ditches, canals, and aqueducts, stealing gravity from California's. One of a kind water delivery system that counted on gravity to flow. This article notes that from one end of the San Joaquin Valley to the other, 500,000 acres of new almond and pistachio trees have been added to the old trees in the past 10 years. This in a period plagued by two of the worst droughts in California history, or grimmer yet, one epic drought interrupted by the record flood year of 2017. If the water-guzzling almonds demand less irrigation than the water-guzzling crops that feed the mega-dairies, the aggregate of their intensification is no less alarming. In Mandara County, during this same scorched decade, the ground devoted to almonds has expanded by 60,000 acres. Anyway, this worthwhile article explains how there's, uh, they're overdrawing 1 million acre-feet every dry year which is water taken out of the earth and not returned by rain or snowmelt. It's, it's basically water mining. To overdraw that 1 million acre-feet of overdraft, it's worth noting that all the houses and businesses of Los Angeles, by comparison, consume 580,000 acre-feet of water every year. So yes, they're overdrawing twice of what Los Angeles uses every year in just Madera County. And the piece notes, if the math of irrigation didn't work out before the arrival of climate change, it certainly doesn't work now. Even in a wet year, the San Joaquin River provides nowhere near enough flow to sustain the sub-basin's 235,000 irrigated acres. Three-fourths of that water comes from the ground. One thing that certainly doesn't help the situation of planting uh, tree crops that are very thirsty is the fact that, uh, that institutional investors or awash in easy money from hedge funds, pension funds, and the Mormon church are just adding to the vicious circle. Meanwhile, real estate developers are adding more subdivisions to the new town of 100,000 people rising atop the same bent aquifer. And my God, I used to work in Madeira. The idea that it's at 100,000 people is amazing. Maybe frightening is a better word. Anyway, I know Merced County. I know Madera County. I'm thinking about packing up and going over and visiting uh, Mark Angle myself and talking about some of this and taking a look at it. Worthy field trip, I think, and uh, just might do it. In the meantime, I can certainly recommend to all of you to check out the data that is contained in this article in The Atlantic. We've talked a great deal on this program about the the so-called controversy of whether uh, droughts and extreme weather events are related to um, global warming. And while it may, at least in some minds, remain unclear whether record CO2 levels are producing more wildfires, one thing that uh, nobody's going to be able to contest is the fact that wildfires are definitely producing record CO2. article in New Scientist by Adam Vaughn points out that extraordinary wildfires are causing the highest carbon dioxide emissions in decades, which is certainly not welcome news. California, of course, is, is, is burning up. But it's not the only place. There's fires in Europe, and apparently there are huge fires in Siberia that are dwarfing what we're even seeing in North America. The piece quotes Daniel Swain at the University of California, Los Angeles, as saying, by many metrics, it has been an extraordinary fire season in the Northern Hemisphere. This year apparently started quietly for wildfires and looked to follow the trend of some recent years that saw some global decline. But mid-year, all that changed. And the band of fire in the sub-Arctic region stands in contrast to the big story of the past two years when heat waves led to record fires in the Arctic itself, where fuel is usually too cold to burn. Estimates are that this year, wildfires have released a total of 4.3 gigatons of CO2. That was up till August 16th, which is more than gets emitted by the entire EU every year. And in case you're not depressed enough, you may, you may want to pause. We, we pause a minute to give you a chance to mix a drink. And Mr. Midland suggests you make it a double. Of course, he always would suggest that. Let's let's, let's read from the talk of the town from the current issue of The New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert. In 1988, the World Meteorological Organization teamed up with the United Nations Environmental Program to form a body with an even more cumbersome title. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or as it quickly became known, the IPCC. The IPCC structure was every bit ungainly as its name. Any report the group issued had to be approved not just by the researchers who collaborated on it, but also by the governments of the member countries, which today number 195. The process seemed guaranteed to produce gridlock, and by many accounts, that was the whole point of it. One of the architects of the IPCC was the Reagan administration. Indeed, when the scientists drew up their first report in 1990, the diplomats tried so hard to water down their conclusions that the whole enterprise nearly collapsed. Every five or six years since then, the group has updated its findings using the same procedures. It's in this context that the latest IPCC effort released last week has to be read, or more likely, not read. Even the shortest and snappiest versions of the report, the so-called Summary for Policymakers, which at 41 pages is just 1% the length of the full document, is in its mix of technical and turgid pretty much impenetrable. Still, it manages to terrify. Owing to humans, the report states, the world is warmed by more than 1 degree Celsius, which is nearly 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Global temperatures are now higher than at any other time in the past 125,000 years. Anthropogenic warming, which is what you have to call this, the report observes, is already producing fiercer heat waves, heavier rainstorms, and more violent cyclones. In the coming decades, still hotter heat waves and worse flooding are to be expected as events that are now considered extreme become commonplace. The piece notes that just before the report came out, the Dixie Fire burning northeast of Sacramento became the largest single fire on record in California history. Elsewhere in the world doesn't look too good. The city of Syracuse in Sicily set what appears to be the new European temperature record of 119.8 Fahrenheit. Piece says, as the world fried and boiled, Washington continued to do what it does best, which is argue. On Tuesday, the Senate approved its much-touted bipartisan infrastructure package. It allocates billions of dollars for climate-related projects, such as upgrading electrical grid and improving public transportation. But the level of funding falls far short of what is needed, and key provisions, including standards that would compel utilities to move away from fossil fuels, are missing. Meanwhile, the bill contains a great deal of spending that's likely to increase carbon emissions. Our elected representatives are trying to, uh, to, to, to sort this out Piece notes in an awkward twist drafting the details of this program will fall to the Senate's Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which is headed by the fossil fuel friendly Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia. Skipping ahead, Piece notes every delay matters here. Three decades have passed since the IPCC released its first report. And here's the part where you may want to have to reach for that drink. During that time, annual global emissions have nearly doubled, and the amount of carbon In the atmosphere put there by humans has more than doubled. As a result, the world is rapidly approaching thresholds that no sane person would want to cross. This needs to be stressed. IPCC put out a report in 1990 that was pointing out the direction we were likely to head in and the direction we have, in fact, headed in. They watered it down, they blurred the reality of it, and as a result, churning out CO2 at a record pace. 1990 to now, that's 30 years, 30 plus years, we have doubled, in fact, more than doubled the amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere. So whatever we put into our atmosphere since the dawn of the industrial age until 1990 has now been more than doubled. Okay, pause. You can, you can take a drink. In fact, take another one. The goal of the Paris Agreement, approved in 2015, was to hold the increase of global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius and to try to limit it to 1.5. The IPCC considered five possible futures. Under one scenario, the most optimistic, by, though by no means most realistic, carbon emissions will fall to zero during the next few decades, and new technologies will be invented to suck tens of billions of tons of CO2 from the air. Even in this case, the average global temperatures are expected to increase by 1.6 Celsius by the middle of the century. Under a more likely scenario, the world will warm by two degrees Celsius, then by almost three by the end of the century. And in a not at all implausible scenario, temperatures will rise 3.6 degrees Celsius or 6.5 Fahrenheit by about 2090. By the way, I just read the disturbing fact that one-fifth of the electrical use by we humans goes to air conditioning. As things get hotter, it's going to be hard to reverse that, wouldn't you say? By the way, if you like statistics, you may want to note that uh, July of this year was the hottest July ever recorded since we've been making records. And wouldn't you know, it turns out the last seven Julys are the seven hottest Julys since we've been making records. All right, let's continue to fall off the cliff of climate change. We haven't hit the bottom of the ravine quite yet. Here's an item that I was ignorant of, and I think most people were, um, that it turns out that this has been burning all of these fossil fuels over the last uh, couple hundred years. One of the pollutants has been sulfate aerosols. This was evidently addressed in the IPCC report. Tiny particles produced by the combustion of coal and some, sort, and some sorts of oil. These float in the air. They're bad for us, bad for the lungs, they kill millions of people. Bad stuff. but sulfates do provide a net cooling. Estimates are perhaps zero point four to zero point five degrees Celsius since the late nineteenth century. It's noted that this may be a large part of the reason why that period has only seen one point one degrees Celsius of warming. But of course, sulfate's influence on the wane is declining because it's a pollutant we've been getting rid of in recent decades. Sulfur is now removed from almost all liquid fuels. In fact, back when George Herbert Walker Bush was president and they first realized that the sulfates being emitted from power plants were causing acidification in streams all over the country. I remember when Bush 41 said, that's a thing we're going to have to study, going to have to take a look at that. Well, they did take a look, and I guess they did reduce the sulfate emissions. And who knew there was a downside to that? A lot of people are counting on the fact that the Amazon uh, is the great uh, absorber of CO2, the tropical forest, the world's largest tropical forest, located mainly in Brazil. But guess what? Parts of the Amazon are now emitting more carbon dioxide than they absorb, according to a new study. That's because a lot of it is on fire, so they can burn down the forest and convert it over into ranching. In fact, all these fires in the Amazon are pumping out more than 1.1 billion tons of carbon a year, about the same as Japan, the world's fifth biggest polluter. Okay, you, you, can, you can have yet another drink probably, it's okay. But please, if you're driving, pull over for a minute. Pull over for a couple minutes. That's a joke. We know you're not driving and drinking. At least we hope not. Yeah, Week Magazine notes that most of these emissions in the Amazon are coming from forest fires, often set deliberately to clear land for beef and soy production. And you may have noticed the headline story that uh, this tall peak in Greenland, for I believe the second time in history, had rain at its summit. Rain, not snow. This is Greenland. It was raining on a mountaintop in Greenland. I guess it did happen once a couple years ago, but now it's happening again and the melting of the greenland ice pack is, consider- is is accelerating to the point where people are really fearing what it may do to the gulf stream in centuries past been documented that a large inflow of glacial melt from north america added so much cold water to the north atlantic that it shut down that great conveyor belt of the gulf it shut down that great conveyor belt of the gulf stream which they certainly depend on in in Norway and Iceland and other places, the UK, to keep it a little warmer than it would otherwise be. People don't realize how much further north Europe is than a lot of North America. London would be north of Edmonton, Alberta, if we slid it west into the North American continent. It's a lot warmer in London than it is in Edmonton. But wouldn't you know it, a study of the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, a AMOC, which includes the Gulf Stream, took a look at this uh, this aquatic conveyor belt, and the study they did found that by eight different measures of the AMOC, going back as far as 150 years, all of them pointed to one conclusion: a massive influx of fresh water from the melting ice sheets and glaciers of Greenland and the Atlantic is altering the conveyor belt's strength. This report of this appeared in the Washington Post, which noted that the system is not at a tipping point. But it's so large and complex, that it's impossible to say if or when that will happen. Scientists have recently found that the AMOC is as weakest in more than 1,000 years. Meanwhile, back in the American Southwest, tree ring studies have identified four mega droughts that place over the last 1,200 years, and it is thought that the one that's currently underway may equal the worst of the lot. And notes The Week magazine to make matters worse the mega drought is arriving at a time when the Southwest population is booming. Arizona, Nevada, Texas, and Utah are all among the fastest growing states in the nation. It quoted a man named Ed Bowler from St. George, Utah, saying, We've always been dry, but we didn't have all these people. The population of St. George has grown sevenfold since 1980. And you know, in the three minutes we got left, we need to just lighten the mood somehow. Well, what do you know? The Week magazine just arrived. We can do another copy, Mr. Milano, of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Apparently it was a good week this past week for wheeling and dealing with the news that bids were starting at $2 million for the Los Angeles Cemetery Crypt, directly adjacent to Hugh Hefner's and Marilyn Monroe's. The seller of the empty family crypt says the price goes back to that old adage, location, location, location. And apparently it was a bad week last week for Donald Trump who got surprised by boos and jeering from a rally crowd in COVID-ravaged Alabama when he advised them to, quote, take the vaccines, unquote, to which we add, take the vaccines. Well, better late than never. And speaking of COVID, it was definitely an ugly week for that election recount fiasco taking place down in Arizona when uh, it was revealed that This past week, three of the auditing team's five members fell ill with COVID-19. The GOP-led state senate in Arizona hired Cyber Ninjas, a company with no experience in audits, to investigate claims that President Biden's 45,000 vote in Maricopa County was based on fraud. Doug Logan, CEO of the Florida-based company, said that the 2020 election was rigged, and Cyber Ninja auditors pursued fringe theories about fake ballots shipped in from China. According to Arizona Senate President Karen Fan, Logan and two of his colleagues are now quite sick with COVID nineteen. And you know, could it happen to nicer fellas? Maricopa County recorder Steven Richter, a Trump supporter, said he'd be willing to review the election results despite three post-election audits finding no evidence of fraud. But he did call cyber ninjas biased, inexperienced, incompetent, and conspiracy theory driven. Gee, you think? Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax.